0: Hello. And welcome back to this week's edition of The Hashtag Fine Things podcast. I'm your host Kenny Gold, and with me to my virtual left, Amanda Davis, Project Director at Grey. Hello, Amanda.
1: Good morning. Love the energy.
0: Thank you. And with me to my virtual right, Executive Director of Data Strategy, Beth Rawls. did I get the title right?
2: You did. Yes, (laughs) finally.
0: After (laughs) weeks of podcasting together, I got your title right. So excited to be here with everyone virtually. So excited to talk about what's going on in the world of social and digital and marketing. We are all remote. I'm live from the Jersey Shore. I believe Amanda Davis is in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Beth is in Beth is in Nevada.
2: Did I say that like the local? You did. Good job with the hard A. That's how you're
1: supposed to say it.
2: Yeah, it is not Nevada. If you say Nevada oh. in Nevada, you will you'll get an earful for sure.
1: Oh my god, I learned something new already, and we're only a minute in. Great value add.
0: You're about to learn five <laughs> new things. So here we go. Uh, I will be kicking it off with the U.S. government announcing a potential ban on TikTok. Beth will be talking a bit about how Facebook's civil rights audit found, quote-unquote, serious setbacks. Amanda will talk about some rumors around Twitter subscription platform spread. And, oh, the rumors are spreading. It's not called spread. <laughs> and Beth will be talking a bit about how Instagram tested a new shops tab. And then Amanda will be closing us out with the fact that Instagram rolled out opt- the option to pin post comments very exciting stuff. So why don't we just dive right in to what is happening with these five things. The U.S. government announced that uh, they will be potentially considering a ban on TikTok. Uh, It is a ban on the popular Chinese social media app that has taken the world by storm. Over the last few years, U.S. lawmakers have grown increasingly concerned about TikTok's handling of user data, In the relationship between its parent company, ByteDance, and the Chinese government. Lawmakers here in the US allege that TikTok uh, could be pressured into handing over data or other intelligence to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, This is pretty heavy stuff for a platform that is consumed by uh, young people literally just dancing. Uh, Now, open it up to our esteemed panel. What do you all think? Talk me through it.
1: Um, I'll go first. Oh, I know I usually do. Um I'm just a little confused why the government is so focused on the data spread and share from TikTok specifically. But kind of um, you know, let lets Facebook and a lot of other platforms, even Amazon and Google, fly a little bit under the radar. So Not really a take, but maybe more of a question. Is TikTok doing anything that those other platforms are not doing?
0: It's less about what they're doing and more about where their parent company is located, I think.
1: Right. But don't you think Facebook data is making its way to China regardless?
0: I don't know. We have a data expert here, so let's hear (laughs) it.
1: I mean, I
2: don't know. The crackdown on Facebook data has been intense over the last couple years. I think this is much more of a political, to Kenny's point, a political story about um, relationship between the US and China versus uh, a true concern about data rights when it comes to like the people on the back end of the data. That's kind of my very candid take on it. But I just think if we shut down TikTok, that you will have a uproar of people not having- An
0: uproar is an understatement. I think you will see a Gen Z revolt. I think we already know what happens (laughs) when the TikTokers and the K-pop teams get out there and try to leverage TikTok to wreak havoc. Um, I I don't want- I don't think we should mess with those people. I just don't.
1: Yeah, but it might happen. The juice isn't really worth the squeeze, I feel. Um, I don't know that, yeah, having that political conversation is really worth banning a social platform that, you know, is, is again, not doing anything much different than other social platforms. Um, and I think it's it's an education moment, too. I mean, I think Gen Z is probably more aware of what happens to their data than most generations but I think it's a little unsafe to imply that somehow TikTok is dangerous, but data that you give to all the other platforms and data capture um, companies is somehow safer. So there's a little bit of a di- dichotomy of how that's being communicated, I think, to Gen Z and, and and the rest of the U.S. What it makes me wonder is if what is happening on
2: our phone when we launch TikTok Because if you think about the profile that you have to fill out when you sign up for TikTok and like the actual content that's on TikTok, there's nothing particularly sensitive there. But I wonder if when we launch TikTok, something's happening to gather data off other things that we're doing on our phone. And that's a concern. I know conspiracy theories throwing it out there.
0: (laughs) No, I so I think about that. I think about that every single time I open my Bank of America app using um, using my biometrics is who's capturing the weird looks on my face on the 15th and 30th of every single month when I'm <laughs> yes. logging in to see if I got paid. Um, but in terms of what this means for marketers and if I'm being completely candid, you know, I still think brands should be in a lurking phase when it comes to TikTok anyway because they don't fully understand the audiences or the power of what's going to be happening on a platform like this. So the truth is, I don't know if this changes the approach. I hear a lot of uh, brands out there being like, well, maybe we should pause what we're doing on TikTok and wait and see what happens. And it's like, wait and see what happens. You haven't done anything yet. You don't understand the audience yet. You just see it as another ad channel. Like, let's all take a deep breath see how this thing plays out, but you should be learning and continuing to see the behavior because it's going to take you at least a year to understand what's going on on this channel. Moving on, Beth, what did Facebook find when they did their civil rights audit? Tell us.
2: Man, I'm so excited to be covering this article um, because Facebook has a regular audit that they do. And I think it's it's really commendable of them to have an outside company come and Audit them, Um, but this audit found serious setbacks in respect to how they're approaching some of the civil rights concerns on the platform. Um, I'm gonna read a couple quotes from this to properly summarize. Um, But my favorite one from it, this article is in our view, Facebook has made notable progress in some areas but it has not yet devoted enough resources or moved with sufficient speed to tackle the the multitude of civil rights challenges that are before it. So they cite the, um, specifically the post from President Trump that said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And then also the um, response to that post, which was some political ads that ran that kind of amplified this message about Antifa terrorists and kind of gave the idea that armed citizens should be shooting looters. Some crazy stuff. Um, But what made me really like excited about this article actually is that this quote that the auditors do not believe that Facebook is sufficiently attuned to the depth of concern on the issues of polarization and the way the algorithms used by Facebook inadvertently fuel extreme and polarizing content so, I have a lot of opinions about algorithms and the divisiveness of algorithms and how they're um kind of helping to keep individual views set with the people that have those views and values and not kind of sharing the whole picture of what's going on in the u s with us all. so I think it's it's an interesting time for facebook um Cheryl Sandberg commented that uh it's the beginning of the journey not the end and so she's using this as an opportunity to grow but facebook did meet with civil rights leaders and the civil rights leaders are less um enthused and hopeful that this will actually turn into anything i don't think there's a lot of expectation that
0: i'm going to jump change. in here as someone who has been following this thing pretty closely as well as how all of you've been following it and I think, and I've read a few articles about this, so this isn't an original take, but I will go as far as saying that I think this is a bigger deal in the ad industry than it is in actual society. And we all care because we want to position our clients to be in the right space, and we want to position... Our, uh, our brands to be able to use the channels effectively without you know being positioned next to hate speech or anything that's inappropriate. But when you ask the general Facebook consumer how they feel about this, or the Instagram consumer, nobody's stopping going on Instagram, nobody. And all of the people in the ad industry who are intently focused on doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do are not stopping going on Instagram. And they're not stopping going on Facebook, even though all of that participation is continuing to feed the ability for Facebook and Instagram to make money. So what this is, is an exercise in safe advertising, not an exercise in an all out ban across the advertising industry and using this channel in the month of July.
1: So I would just counter and say, I think that the audience that's on Facebook, of course, isn't going to be upset about this algorithm that actively gives them things that they agree with and feel comfortable and safe seeing. And they know they're going to log on there and see the baby pictures and the left wing, you know, media articles that their friends are sharing. Like it becomes this kind of coddled space for them. So I agree that I don't think consumers care right now because it's it's benefiting them from an emotional standpoint of feeling like this is their platform. They know what they're going to see. They like it. They get it. They agree with it. They're pleased when they get on and off of it. So I think that it's like they should be um, concerned about it and they should be, you know, seeing things in their feed that obviously are counter to what they're saying, although that's not the most comfortable experience.
0: I agree. A hundred percent. I think it's, we are, we have built glorified echo chambers and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's, it's going to ultimately end hopefully with the platform being in a place where brands feel comfortable advertising on, on it again, but the, 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 the losers in all of this are the brands themselves because they don't get access to the platform to reach communities that they want to talk to uh, because they, they are, they are, we require that they do the right thing right now. So it's just a very interesting time. And and I'm starting, you know, when you look at Facebook's revenue, this isn't making a dent in Facebook's revenue. And I just wonder who is this really hurting?
2: Yeah. I don't know. I think there's like an interesting shift, though, with so many social platforms kind of on the rise that you could choose from. And I agree with you that the average consumer is like, yeah, I'll still be on Facebook. But um, the idea that there was an employee walkout, and um, now the ad boycott on top of that, I think it's it's an interesting foreshadowing of what could happen for Facebook if this became a bigger issue. And in terms of the safe space, the other thing it's doing is it's creating an open space for brands. I'm air quoting brands um, that have more divisive messages or are selling products that um, are you know, just generally racist to have a place to do that which is kind of scary.
0: Very. I also think this is, and I said it on another one of our shows, um, this to me represents the first major step in the decentralization of social with a capital S. Um, I think that we are going to start to see the notion of connected communities versus ad networks. And th- and that's really where we are at this at this stage. Well, we have talked about this a lot. We are going to move on, Amanda, to the rumors that are spreading about a Twitter subscription platform. Let's hear it.
1: I have the dramatic one, I love it. Um, this one's really interesting. It's, I just, I love the internet and people finding any any information that they could possibly want to find. So what happened this week is that Twitter posted a job description um, for, you know recruiting engineers to an internal team called uh, Gri- Griffin Gryphon? I don't know how it's pronounced. I'll say Griffin. It's it's probably,
0: it's Griffin. I think it's Griffin.
1: I think it is. Yeah, it's a code name, so we can kind of make it up whatever we want it to be. So they were looking for engineers to join this internal team called Griffin with the description of it working to build a subscription platform. Other than that, the job description didn't really say much other than that the team has, you know diverse global backgrounds and they're building components for experimentation it was all very vague but exciting sounding um and this was actually to me quite surprising that this is how you know this subscription platform news is broken from twitter i think twitter of all social networks knows that information spreads very easily and, and you might think that they would want to own the narrative around what they're doing with a subscription platform what the intention is etc um and while the way that that news kind of circulated and came out was surprising, it's it's not something that I don't think people saw coming. Um they got a lot of new stakeholders this year. Their their earnings were down in the first couple of quarters as were most um, you know, platform marketings. Um so while they're getting all this pressure to monetize, they're just they're fig- figuring out new ways to diversify outside of just ad sales. Um so this is opening up a lot of questions for people. I mean, you look at similar platforms, Patreon, Twitch, um, other not as family friendly platforms where people pay for content access from creators. and it's a pretty it's a pretty obvious shift of creating some kind of paywall for exclusive content. So that's what a lot of people are are kind of thinking this will be. But right now, it's just a big mystery that, again, Twitter is almost letting people run with this narrative instead of owning it themselves, which is pretty surprising. Um, so I'm interested to see how this, this kind of unfolds.
0: Not a fan. I'll tell you why. If, it is, if, if it's about exclusive content that exists on this platform, I'll tell you why I, I'm just like not here for it. Um, first and foremost, why I love Twitter is universal democratic access to content from all people. You know, from CNN anchors to celebrities to regular Joe and Jane Schmoes, just like us on this podcast, you know, everybody has the equal opportunity to push out a tweet and consume it and the potential for it to go wide and far and and deep. Uh, The notion that all of a sudden we're going to start putting paywalls and subscriptions, and I mean, we obviously don't know what it is, so we don't want to speak too soon, but like, I don't need another newsletter. Like I go on Twitter because I want to feel the, I want to feel the pulse. I don't go on Twitter because I want something, you know, that nobody else has access to. Just my IMO.
1: (laughs) It's also the nature of Twitter and what people I feel like use it for is not particularly that very, you know, thought out, long form blog article, think piece op-ed it, that's not the nature of what people go to Twitter for. It's more of those little bites of thoughts, that kind of stream of consciousness, the hot takes. Like, I, I just don't know if that behavior is going to exist on the platform enough to create a paywall against it. And then if it does, you know, come to life that way, I just don't think people will leverage it, honestly.
2: Yeah. I feel like this is a little bit reminding me of R.A.P. Quibby and the <laughs> idea that, like, whoa. I know, I know. Really controversial. You can't officially RIP. Just
0: so you know, Quibi's on bed rest, okay? They're not dead yet.
2: Okay, okay, sorry. This is my little world I live in. They're still alive, (laughs) but the kind of hype around it and the idea that there would be content that was exciting enough. It's like, how do you take content from Twitter and make it worth the paywall also? I don't know. Um, not saying that Twitter isn't exciting. I love Twitter. I'm with Kenny on the Twitter train.
1: There's also just one more part of the rumor that could make a little bit more sense. But some people are wondering if this subscription service is geared towards brands and marketers to be able to tap into deeper data, get more information on the audience. That to me makes more sense. But it's to be said what's really going to happen. You know, maybe it could be a self-service tool for brands to kind of access their data on their own or audience data, things like that, instead of having to go through, you know, a deeper layer of Twitter, um, you know, representation on the other side. So just worth throwing out. It's another way it could come to life. We will keep monitoring it. I'm sure the Internet will keep giving us information about it. (laughs) Fair. I would be stoked about that.
0: And Quibi, As well as this idea, remind me of the hit 1996 song from Duncan Sheik, Barely Breathing. (laughs) Um, So I will now move this on. (laughs) Keep us moving here to Instagram testing out a new shops tab. Beth, tell us about it.
2: Man, I feel like this shops tab was made for me. I love shopping on Instagram. So Instagram has... Um, They started talking about this in May, actually, that they were going to have a shop tab. Um, But what we're talking about today isn't the full plan that they talked about in May. It's actually kind of a pared down um, thing that they did where they have removed the activity button, which if you all didn't know, the activity button is the heart button on the navigation and replaced it with a shop button, which is now a cute little shopping bag. Um, And the main difference or what this allows us to do is we'll be able to shop in basically the explore tab and we will be able to filter by brands we either follow or categories that we're interested in. So really taking the shopping experience to kind of a curated virtual marketplace, which I personally love and I think it opens up a very interesting opportunity for marketers on the app and then the role of influencers as well. What do you guys think?
1: Kenny knows I also love shopping on Instagram. I say this every time, too, and not to be, um, you know, too obvious, but it's going to work. People will buy stuff from it. It's going to, I like it. It pushes, you know, small businesses that maybe can't drive traffic to their website necessarily, but have a big social presence, especially right now, every business has to be online. Um, it adds, it takes away the layer of creating an online marketplace separate from the platform where your audience is. It's super smart and it makes sense. I think my question was, why would it replace? I'm just thinking about user experience. And when you go to your like likes and notifications, it's interesting that that's the place that they kind of move to another uh, area on the screen. It's I think it's in like the top right now in this version of it. I just feel like that is almost taking away a little bit of the social interaction and kind of um, habitual checking of like comments and likes and and things like that. So it's it's a pro and a con that I'm imagining. There, you know, Instagram hears that people's mental health is affected by. Getting likes, not getting likes, getting certain comments, etc. cetera. So I'm wondering too, if it's an inadvertent way to refocus the platform on a different kind of interaction, I guess I could say.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think Instagram more so than any other channel has done an unbelievable job of shrinking the funnel. And this to me, just, it, I wonder if it reverts back to a behavior. Of needing to go to a destination in order to buy something versus the inherently shrunk consumer funnel that exists within a buy more, buy now, shop now, click here, swipe up nature of what made Instagram shopping so special and so different. Um, so I'll be curious to see how it evolves. I, I think Pinterest and Instagram are the two main courses in this race. Um, and I'll be curious to see if the niche curated design aesthetic of Pinterest can overpower the reach and frequency of what Instagram provides. But I think for marketers, the exciting thing is that we are now in a world where they're going to be able to have greater immediate access to their consumer base when it comes to selling products.
2: Yeah. The one thing that you brought up that I should have touched on also is that consume the funnel piece of all of this um so an interesting part of this is some of the brands that you shop will be able to check out through the Instagram cart but then some of the brands that you shop will send to direct to brand website um so it's interesting when you think about the user experience it's like depending on what you select you will have a different end experience which could drive you to different shopping behaviors, whether you can stay consistently in the app or move out of the app.
0: Interesting, really interesting. Amanda, take us home with Instagram rolling out the option to pin post
1: comments. Another Instagram feature this week, um, and this has actually been rolled out to all users on the platform, but now anyone can pin comments that are left on their post to the top of the comment section. Um, right now, top comments or kind of comments that you would see scrolling through the feed would mainly be celebrities, people with a lot of followings, um, someone who at mentioned the poster, or people that you know directly. So, you know, the way that Instagram described this is, is a bit of a, a democratizing the comment section to highlight positive contrib- contributions and, and manage the tone of the conversation and encourage civil discussion. So that's Instagram's take on it. Um, I think it's complex as far as what it will impact. There's there's pros and cons. I mean, the pro is obviously, yeah, you can highlight positive conversation and control a little bit of the you know comments being made and what people are seeing when they look at your post. But I, I see a bit of a con, and maybe this is cynical, similar to what we were talking about before, where you can reiterate that echo chamber of... This is what I think, and I'm going to support and highlight the comments that celebrate that and agree with me. And anything that is counter might get buried, you know, under the rest of the comment stream. So I, I do understand the intention of it, and I think it's an interesting move. But I'm curious if this will just continue to create these siloed conversations, and and people will not be heard if they have a counter opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think this this is oddly buying into the Finstagram argument that this is designed to be an ultra curated channel. Uh, I don't love it. Uh, I do think when it comes to brand presence, it's an interesting way to highlight and showcase your um, loyalists, if you will. Um, But it doesn't feel... It it feels like burying, which I don't dig. Too much.
2: I'm with you guys on the burying part for sure. Um, totally agree. The other thing that I'm not crazy about it from like a personal preference point of view is I like to see what celebrities that I follow or my friends comment. So I think it's interesting in the kind of break of your community and their opinions that you're getting as well. On sort of, I guess, the flip side of that. And then I also wonder how they're going to categorize positive comments. Are you just going to see love it 16 times and then get to other comments? Or how are they going to rank what positive comments get to be shown at the top?
0: Well, they're certainly not going to prioritize. I found a bug in my drink. (laughs) True. (laughs) True.
1: It's also I think the interesting kind of back piece of information is obviously Instagram is owned by Facebook, who is going through all of this ringer of how they're handling, you know, mainly political conversation. Let's call it what it is, you know, on the Facebook platform. I do think this is almost a workaround for Instagram to not necessarily have to create a lot of these policies and to potentially um, de-escalate how some of those conversations can happen and are happening on Facebook more so. Um, so I, I kind of feel like this is a little bit of like a crowd control tactic that is protecting the platform from becoming too much of this battleground that's probably done in a way that's more proactively varying away from the issues that the Facebook platform is having. So it's like a light, it's a soft way to control the conversation.
0: <laughs> well, that, that to me is the mic drop moment. It's the end of the debate. It's the end of the discussion. <laughs> I would like to thank Amanda Davis and Beth Rolfs for joining us today on the Hashtag podcast. To let us know what you think about the show, please hit us up on either Gray's social channels or you can email us at podcasts@gray.com. At we'll be taking next week off. Smell you later. We'll see you in two weeks. And as always, stay safe, stay smart, stay social
1: that line still it kind of it gives me like a slightly ironic Ron Burgundy vibe but I like it Kenny's like I have to deal with this every week
0: <laughs> The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Patti and Grace McDougal. produced by Joey Scarillo Danielle Hunt and John Dillon additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world Check out more at gray.com.